0: Good morning, church. Happy Sunday to you. Glad you could join us again. We're on the backstretch for Easter, and today in our sermon series, we're looking at the last week of Jesus' life, and today we're looking at Saturday. But before we do that, let's recall just a bit of what happened on Friday from uh, Luke 23. Got your Bibles open? Turn to Luke 23, starting at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who'd gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it, and they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience. To the commandment. So it's Friday before sundown, Joseph of Arimathea asks Pilate boldly for Jesus' body. They want to get it down off the cross before sundown, because sundown on Friday night is when Sabbath begins. The Jewish calendar runs from sundown to sundown, not from midnight to midnight. So the Jewish leaders then, at some point, asked Pilate to seal the tomb because they thought there might be some thievery going on. If the disciples got a hold of Jesus' body, they would convince others that he had risen from the dead. And the first, that deception would be worse than the first, they said. So there was some things going on that Friday night, but really, the disciples themselves, the women with them, were crushed. I mean, consider them just for a second here. The dream is over their Savior, their Lord, their master, their teacher, they watched die on a Roman cross. The leaders, the Jewish leaders, greatly overestimated, I think, the disciples in their bravery, their courage. They weren't about to go stealing any bodies out of any tombs that particular night. I believe they were beyond grief. Their long-awaited Messiah the deliverer of Israel, the one who would sit on the throne of David forever, was dead. And it's Friday afternoon, the sun is setting, Sabbath is approaching fast, and they wanted to get Jesus off that cross and properly situated before the day of rest would come. And the last verse of Luke 23 says, On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So really all they got done, they were losing daylight. They wrapped him in a linen cloth and put him in the tomb. And that's really all that they got done. The women gathered the spices and the ointments and they were going to return to give him a proper burial, but they couldn't do it on Sabbath. They rested the entire Sabbath day, the entire seventh day, spent waiting for what they really, really wanted to do to go back and give Jesus' body the proper dignity of a burial and their version of embalming and preservation. But there's a deep sense of despair and confusion, maybe anger, physical, mental, emotional exhaustion, all the while afraid that the Jewish and Roman authorities, that they'd come after them next. There wasn't much happening on Saturday in the Gospels because there wasn't supposed to be. Sabbath was a day set aside from the literal beginning of time for worship and for rest. And I want to take a little time to figure out from Scripture what and why, what Sabbath is and why. So turn back in your Bibles to my next reference here, Genesis chapter 2. The seventh day, Genesis 1 is all about the first six days of creation. But starting verse 1 of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God's rest in Genesis 2 wasn't because he was tired. It's all about an example and a command that he would set up later. It's about filling a day with nothing, no busyness, no production, just attention toward God and attention toward self and renewal. It was supposed to be. Also for the land, although that's a whole different set of Sabbath regulations and sevens all through the Old Testament. It's fascinating. Don't have time to get into it, but it's it's an amazing setup that God, in his wisdom, gave to humans. There's two words in the Old Testament for Sabbath. One is, it, it kind of looks like Sabbath, is Shabbat, which miss means to stop or to cease. The other word that's used is nuach, which is to settle in, to get maybe in a chair to get comfy, to just really just relax and get established in something. And of course to settle in, you must first stop. The first time the word Sabbath occurs in Scripture is Exodus, actually, chapter 16. Before The people of Israel got to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, but after they left Egypt, they're delivered from slavery, they're in the wilderness, they're getting hungry, they're getting grumpy. And God says, I'll give you bread. I'll give you quail. But here's some instructions. Chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them to see whether or not they'll follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So, the first day to the fifth day, they gather enough for that particular day, and it says that some of them tried to gather more, Some of them tried to keep it till morning, and it was full of worms, maggots, and it stunk. But on the sixth day, they were supposed to gather twice as much as they needed, one for that day, and then they were supposed to save some over to the seventh day. And on the seventh day, it didn't stink. It didn't rot. It wasn't full of worms. God had provided for them. So take a look, turn the page if you have to, to Exodus 16, verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers, if that's what your Bible says. I don't know, two quarts in some other versions. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That's why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. We find here that the people didn't trust the Lord. They didn't trust his provision. They're in the middle of wilderness. There's no food except for what God gives. The first Sabbath observance takes place in a place of scarcity. Israel wants to hoard, they want to gather, they want to save, but it doesn't last, except for what they gather on the sixth day to save until the seventh to honor the Sabbath rest. And God wanted to teach us by example and by command that six days work is enough to provide for seven days. And he wants to teach us that gathering enough for six days really does stretch for seven. More importantly, the day of rest and worship give the other six days strength and purpose and mission. Someone wise once said that if a lumberjack doesn't stop to sharpen his axe, he'll be very tired and he won't get as much done. There needs to be rest and worship. The reason that modern Christians always ask whether the fourth commandment really is applicable to New Testament Christianity is because of all the outward behaviors, it's the hardest for us to really want to follow. I mean, I think most Christians are okay with putting God first and not worshiping idols and not using His name carelessly. Uh, Hopefully, that's not a problem. And on the other side of that, you, you're okay with honoring your father and mother, and you don't mind being told to, to not murder and, and not commit adultery and not steal and not lie. We fudge a little on the not coveting part, but, you know, we're not so sure about the Sabbath. I mean, isn't that just for Jewish people? And I would say that in in the letter of the Sabbath law, it was for the people of Israel But the principle of a day of worship for recreation and rest still stands. I'm horrible at it, I don't know many people who are good at it, but it still stands. The quote from the French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal stuck with me a number of years ago. All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. According to Pascal, we fear the silence, we dread the boredom and instead we choose aimless distraction. And I think the root here, essentially, is we've never learned the art and the discipline of solitude, of being alone. A few years ago, I forced myself into an exercise of solitude. Over in Missouri there is a lake, it's a smaller lake, and maybe not one well known, Lake Palm de Terre. And on Lake Palm de Terre there is a place called the Hermitage Spiritual Retreat Center. There's one guy that lives in a house that he built on the lake. He's a a Jesuit priest, actually, or, or Benedictine, I'm not sure which, but he belongs to a monastery in Springfield. And he goes there one week out of the month, and for the other three weeks of the month, he lives at the Hermitage. And there are cabins on their property. They have lots of acreage around the lake. And one of those, they, they just let people come and stay in these places and for just a donation. And I found out about it, and I thought, I need to get away. I need to get some, some space in my head. I need to, I need to do some thinking. And so one October, I cleared my calendar for four days and three nights and went to the hermitage. No phone service, a one-room cabin complete with a bed, a chair, a table, a lamp, a little area for a kitchen which consisted of a mini fridge, a hot plate, and a little bit of a counter. And then there was a, a, a door, a front door in the corner that led out to a bit of a deck. That's it. And there wasn't anybody within miles except for Father Paul, who lived in the house that he built by the lake, and he was way far off from where I was. There was a, a kayak that I was able to use. and I got out on the water and saw a bald eagle and <clears throat> saw turtles and I saw fish. I saw all kinds of things from the kayak. There were acres and acres of woods, miles of trails. And like I said, Father Paul was in his house, and he didn't want me to bother him unless I really wanted his company. And you might think, wow, that sounds awesome. That sounds really great. I would love to get out and just be amongst nature and deer. Deer were everywhere. I mean, they were coming to see what I was up to because, then you know, nobody's in there. And so I would sit on my deck and I would just watch deer go by and the squirrels and the chipmunks and all the birds. And it was good. It was, it was great, actually, for a couple hours. And then I began to get jittery. And then I began to wonder what to do with myself. I mean, I brought books with me. I mean, i got plenty of books. And I brought a journal with me, and I began to write out my thoughts and my experience and what I'd seen and what I could, um, what I could think about. And I journaled sometimes two or three times a day. And I, I began to notice. I read lots of scripture. Like I said, I brought the books with me. I, brought, I read lots of books. I walked, and I walked, and I walked. And at the end of 24 hours, I began to notice that I began to move slower. I mean, my, my, my eye tracking was, was more smooth. My hands weren't as jittery. I began to walk slower because I could. And I began to notice things about spider webs and, and things that, you know, really aren't all that important or impressive, but I began to stop and to really take notice of these things and appreciate them and worship the God who made them, by the morning of the fourth day, I journaled again, I packed my stuff, and I drove home. Later on, my son Matthew read those entries in my journal, and he made this first observation. He said, Dad, your handwriting changed from the first to the fourth day. It became a whole lot easier to read. There's one article that I read this week, and the quote says, we live in a world where we're connected to everything except ourselves. Think about it. How hard is it for you to be alone? I mean, some of you have no choice. You live alone, but how hard is it for you? I mean, you might not mind being alone, but Alone without music? Alone without your phone for more than 30 seconds? Alone without internet? Alone without the TV playing? I mean some people have the TV on and they're not even watching it. It's background noise. Why? What are we trying to cover up? The silence? What, does, what are we afraid of? If we can't be without our Facebook or without our knitting basket What are we trying so desperately to hide from? It's us. It's rest of mind, not just a body. See, before the pandemic hit, most everyone I listened to talked about how incredibly busy they were. Kids' schedules are running us ragged. Man, if I could just get a day where I could do nothing, if I could just have an afternoon with nothing to do, well, now, now we're supposed to be home. Now there's no sports to run off to and play. Now there's no tournaments. Now there's no school activities. Now, and for some, there's no job because you were put up, you're laid off until later. And I know some folks out there. I I get it. There are some folks out there who are busier than ever. And we appreciate them. I mean, they're the ones on the front lines. They're restocking the grocery shelves. They're doing the truck driving. They're the ones at the hospital. Uh, they're the ones making sure that things continue. They're the ones that, that, making sure we still have electricity and, and, and power and, and, and the internet still running and people are still putting in hours. But a, a good number of people have more time now than they have in a, who knows how long. And what are we doing with this opportunity, this forced opportunity to rest? How are you doing, as one person put it to me recently, in discovering Sabbath? We complain about being so busy, but most of the time, it's our own doing. Most of the time, it's our own choice. We have said yes to too many things. It's maybe just somebody else's idea of a good time. Or maybe it really is beneficial and it's good and it needs to be done. But, and we say yes to that, too. We stuff it in our schedule to the expense of what is really essential. And we get to the point where we're spiritually and mentally and emotionally compromised in our health. We're creating these patterns and we're showing our children what it's like to stay busy, and it's some at some point it's stealing what is most important. We haven't been taught, or we're not courageous enough to say no sometimes, and to say yes to the best things. How do you find yourself responding to this unwelcome slowdown of life? And why do we have such trouble stopping? Why do I have such trouble Sitting and just grabbing a book or grabbing my Bible. Why do I have such trouble slowing my mind? To rest in the Lord Well, there's several reasons I think one is that I don't know what they call it FOMO is that what they call it fear of missing out? I Don't know what's going on out there. I have to turn on the news. I don't know what's going on out there I got to turn on Facebook. I got to get on Instagram. I got to find out what my Twitter feed is doing I got I'll miss something. I'll miss something and so we just engage in all of these different platforms. We're, we're fear of missing out. We're also afraid of unfinished business. There's always more laundry to do. There's always dishes in the sink. There's always this we got to clean up. There's always that project out back. There's always that thing at work that never leaves me alone. Guess what? We're never ever going to be done working on all these things. There's always going to be something. You're never going to get to the, at at 3 o'clock in the same afternoon and go, oh, it's all done. No, it's not. No, no, it's never done. But I think that's what we're afraid of, unfinished business. I think we're also afraid to disappoint other people. There are some of you out there who are very high-functioning and you have this need to make sure everybody's happy and everybody's, you you can help everybody, And you think if you let yourself just sit down for a few seconds that you'll disappoint somebody. You'll miss an opportunity. Look, I'm I'm right there with you. I wear this on my sleeve. This is my life. But if the world falls apart because you take a few hours off, you're doing it wrong. You have said yes to too much. And if you said no to some things, if you let other people step up, you might be surprised As to what can get done without you. But I think mostly why we have trouble slowing down, taking time, is because we're afraid of who we'll find if we stop long enough to catch a breath. Everything around us tells us how busy we are how fast we are, how productive we are, how much fun we're having, the places we're going, the grades we're getting, the scholarship we need, the wins we're collecting, the stuff we can buy, the retirement that we'll enjoy. And then I talk to people who are actually retired and they tell me that they're busier than ever. I'm not sure that we're addicted to busy, although a case could be made for that. Slowing down certainly has withdrawal symptoms. But I think, I wonder, if we're just to be, we're just afraid to be alone with our own thoughts. It's just that busy has become the norm. And we haven't been taught, even in church, that there is benefit and blessing in what Alicia Coley calls the sacred slow. We haven't prioritized saying yes to God as much as we say yes to everything else. Isaiah 30:15, The prophet is recording the words of God to a rebellious people who are going all over the place trying to find help. They're trying to go to Egypt to find help. They're trying to go other places to find help. And, and God is telling them, look, Isaiah 30:15. 15. This says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, In repentance and in rest is your salvation in quietness and in trust is your strength. And then he says, but you were unwilling. How unwilling are we to rest and worship? How stiff-necked and rebellious are we? Look, I'm all about getting to a place where this virus is no longer taking lives. I am all about and praying for the day when we get people back to work and kids can can get back to school, although the question mark that's not going to happen this particular school year, but I'm all for getting people back to being able to see their families again. But I am not on board with what some people have said. I'm praying that things get back to, you say it, normal. I'm not for that. I think normal was part of the problem. I'm convinced God can use COVID-19 to push the reset button on many of our learned, manufactured busyness. I think God is going to use this virus to help many of us discover true rest in Him. Jesus said that true rest is found in Him. Matthew 11, 28, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And Matthew puts that right up against this section in chapter 12 called the Lord of the Sabbath. Follow with me. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priest and the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you'd known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man, which is what Jesus called himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. See, it's not about all of their rules and all of what they decided was against the rules of the Sabbath. It was the intent of the Sabbath. God's intention of the Sabbath was worship and rest. And the people, the Jewish people in Jesus' day were burdened by the Sabbath. There was no rest. That's why Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary. Jesus is not doing away with the concept of the Sabbath, but he's, he was bringing people back to what it originally meant. The purpose of the Sabbath was mercy and harmony and wholeness, not legalism. I, um, I once visited a person in the hospital some years ago now. This guy was my age, and he, um, he had run himself to where he was, his immune system was compromised, his stress levels wreaked havoc on his body. He was on adrenaline rush all the time. His family ran a small business. He was getting his master's degree. Three kids, all involved in sports and 4-H or clubs, sun up to sun down, all of them running from one thing to the next, hardly home, eating out, eating poorly, and it all caught up with him. And at one point, his body just said, Stop! And he got sick. He got really sick. And I'm in the hospital with him, and he's got oxygen on, He's fighting all kinds of infections. He's struggling to breathe. And my heart just went out to this family. I mean, these are awesome people. These are the kind of people that you want coaching your son's team or your daughter's team. These are the kind of people you want teaching your kids in school, the kind of people that you want serving in church. They were just incredible people. Fantastic. And he, in the midst of our conversation, said, man, I, I cannot wait to get out of here and for things to get back to normal. And before I even knew what was coming out of my mouth, I said, normal is what got you in the hospital in the first place. I wanted to just shake him. Do you know what you're doing to yourself? You won't stop. You say you can't stop anymore. But you came to the end of this and you, were, you had to stop. I figure we will learn to stop or our bodies will just stop us. One way or another, we will learn to rest. And I would rather it be in obedience to Jesus than by the direction of a doctor. Andrew Peterson wrote a song called God Rested. And at one point, he says, the song says, the Pharisees were restless, Pilate had no peace. Peter's heart was reckless, and Mary couldn't sleep, but God rested. On that Saturday, that Sabbath, when people were either up in arms, they were afraid, they were angry, they were defensive, all these people, they they were just all manner of emotions, Jesus was in the tomb. God rested from his labor. Like I said before, I'm horrible at this, I don't do this intentionally well, but I'm being very convicted by this study, and I figure if God can take a day off, and He can bless it, and He can set it apart as a gift for us, I think we should take Him up on it. Because if we don't, it's sheer disobedience. The observance of Sabbath from a Jewish standpoint, of all its rules and regulations? No. The practice of Sabbath from Jesus' point of view? Absolutely. One thing I've learned is that people find time to do the things they want to do. It may take them a while, but they find time to do the things they want to do. They'll move heaven and earth to make sure they can get a few hours to do this or that. And after struggling with this concept for years, I think that I have trouble observing a day of rest because I'm afraid what will happen if I do. I have all those other fears I listed before, but I'm convinced that I need to be more afraid of what will happen if I don't. If I don't stop and worship and rest on a regular basis, I'm afraid of what will happen if I don't and our culture right now is experiencing a forced shutdown that I hope by the end of it we will have learned to appreciate some things we've been putting off for far too long that this Sabbath can provide for us a motivation for discipline and obedience to Jesus And I'm not just talking about going to church, although that's probably part of it. I'm talking about carved time just with God, just with your family and the Lord, to be able to slow the mind down long enough, even in a church service, to stop worrying about when things are going to be over, to stop thinking about what's for lunch, to just say, I'm here, it's just me and you, God. Remind me of what we're about. Remind me of what we're supposed to be remembering. Remind me that the body was broken, shredded and given for me and for you. Remind me of Jesus' words, that we do this in remembrance of him. And remind me, slow me down enough that I can take this in, that I can take the cup, and that I can say, thank you, Jesus. I owe my all to you. You've given your all to me. Remind me of the new covenant in your blood that made it possible for me to even know you, to talk to you, to be one with you and with your people. God, thank you so much. And we're supposed to give thanks in all things. And it's hard to be thankful for a virus that takes thousands of lives, that compromises entire economies. But I'm not thankful for the loss of life so much as I am thankful that you're working in the midst of what it is that your people are to be about. You're working within the loss. You're you're calling people to yourself. And you're forcing your church out of its buildings even more into Places where some churches have never set foot, digitally speaking. And I pray that as we go about church in our own homes, maybe with a friend or two, that you can call us to yourself in quiet, in repentance, and in rest. Rewire us if you have to, and draw us to yourself. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.